Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. Our guest on today's episode of Chunk of Change is John Allett, Joint Managing Director of Team Bahrain McLaren. This conversation was fascinating on a number of levels, not just to hear from a design-centred thinker on how he's evolved marketing's role in an engineering-obsessed company like McLaren, but also because the COVID pandemic's brought about other unique challenges, like how to engage with fans in the absence of any physical bike races. John's one of the best exponents of brand experience strategy in the world, and as a result, holds the marketing team at Bahrain McLaren equally as accountable to their KPIs as the engineers and elite athletes are to the race results themselves. Again, I hope you enjoy this very special episode of Chunk of Change. Finally, please forgive us for any discrepancies in sound. This was obviously recorded during the COVID lockdown, so we've adjusted as best we can in the absence of a studio. Thanks very much for joining us, John. It's really great to be chatting with you again. Thanks very much, Steve. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to join you on Chunk of Change. I'd describe you as kind of one of Australia's greatest ever marketing exports. So perhaps to start, I'd love if you could take us back to your early days at Interbrand in Australia. You graduated from the University of South Australia with a degree in graphic design. What were some of the major changes then that saw you progress through to become eventually CEO of their London office? Yeah, well, it was a it was a very different era than now. You know, I I graduated uh, nineteen eighty nine, and words like branding were still not being used um, by by the marketing community. It was very much about uh, corporate identity, um, and uh, and even explaining a term like graphic design back then was was a challenge. Um, in fact, I can remember the very last year of of my four year degree. Uh, the university bought its first computer, so that uh, that probably wow. gives people a sense of just how old I am, but uh, but just how how much it's come on. And and from then, uh, I think design first of all was was uh, tentatively embraced by the business community uh, bit by bit. And uh, I was lucky enough to be working at a place called Cato Partners in in Melbourne uh, from 1990, and and they were really at the forefront of of at the time corporate identity, working for Qantas and and brands like that, um, and then uh, uh, from there I kind of progressed into uh, actually it was a it was a pitch for the British Airways identity that first brought me to London uh, with Cato, and opened my eyes to what was going on over here, and that was uh, a huge revolution around around the idea of of brands rather than uh, identities or or even companies. And uh, and that inspired me when I went back to uh, uh, back to Melbourne after that pitch, to uh, to strike out on my own, and that's how I first came across Interbrand, uh, ultimately selling my consultancy into Interbrand and starting them up in Australia. Okay, and you subsequently moved up through the ranks of Interbrand. You were CEO in Sydney for a while before moving to London as their COO. Why the why the move to London in the first place? So I was I was lucky in as much as I was really setting Interbrand up as a as a sort of wholly owned subsidiary in Australia and and had the good fortune of having an incredible 
global consultancy brand behind me and and everything that came with that, the the IP, uh, the people based around the world, uh, the network of Omnicom um, as, a, as a parent company, uh, and the reputation of, of Interbrand. And uh, I was then able to uh, kind of forge that in the in the uh, way that I thought was best suited to the Australian market. And Australia really was um, very receptive, very open and very ready to uh, not just embrace the philosophy of, of branding, but uh, but I would say to to really kind of pioneer techniques and and ways and means of, of, of applying brands in what is a very competitive marketplace, Australia and, and New Zealand. Uh, and I was lucky, I guess, that uh, that I was also able to then handpick a number of very talented people to come and join that that venture with the backing of Interbrand, uh, based uh, firstly in in Melbourne, uh, and uh, and we picked up some fantastic clients around around that time. And Interbrand globally uh, seemed to like what we were doing, and and probably probably unfairly, to be honest, uh, attributed a lot of that to me and, and tapped me on the shoulder to come over to London, the head office, and uh, uh, and apply a little bit of that philosophy over here. You have been on record as saying that the biggest risk you've ever taken was, was actually leaving behind the agency world and joining McLaren subsequently in 2007. Can you remember how you weighed up that, that decision? I'd be interested to hear on perhaps how you thought about it, some of the processes you went through before ultimately making the late. Yeah, so so I was very happily at at uh, Interbrand in London. Um, this was now two thousand and four, and the first major new client that I that I helped pick up then was McLaren. Uh, at the time, McLaren had a top secret project that they were working on uh, to evaluate a, a potential foray into the supercar market. And uh, and we were engaged to to do the sort of the brand viability uh, study for that. Uh, so I had never, to be honest, never even considered that I would that I would ever um, move out of the agency world and into uh, to to a client side business, you know, into a into a brand. And there were probably very few brands around the world, to be honest, that would have tempted me. Uh, and McLaren was one of them. You know, it was. It was probably the closest experience I'd ever had to working um, back in my uh, Melbourne days for Rip Curl. It was a brand that was very, uh, I guess, pure in terms of the vision of its of its founders. Uh, it was a brand that was uh, very kind of easy to articulate, if you like, and uh, and also a brand that was on a very dynamic journey. And so that, to me, spelt. Uh, an amazing opportunity, and I thought to myself, you know, if I if I'm not going to jump the fence now, um, you know, would I ever? And you know, with that comes risk, I guess. But uh, for me, I could just see so many upsides in terms of the opportunities that that it might afford me to learn and to grow, and hopefully to give me a platform to apply a lot of the theory and experience that I'd had working for a plethora of other brands, both uh, both in Australia and, and here in the UK and Europe. So that was back in 2007. Tell us about the transition. I can only imagine that the challenges would have been significant, but I'd love if you could elaborate on that a little bit further. Yeah, so McLaren is very much a performance environment and, uh, you know, Interbrand also was, was, I guess, a performance environment, but a very different one, a, a far more creative one. Uh, very collaborative one, and and McLaren very quickly 
showed itself to me to be the kind of place where you really needed to be on your metal. You needed to uh, only open your mouth when you knew 100% that something good was going to come out of it. And uh, and it was also a, an, an environment and a culture dominated by engineers and, and technical people. And so for me, coming out of uh, purely design and, and uh, branding agency experience, that was that was really quite a challenge, and it was quite an abrupt change. Uh, and then the other part of it that uh, that I remember stood out for me, Ron Dennis, uh, who had um, uh, who'd uh, brought me into McLaren, uh, the the CEO and, and chairman, uh, had a look at uh, at a sort of a draft piece of brand work that I did in the first couple of weeks, and and said to me quite quite kind of curtly, you know what. What, what what is this? And I said that's that's my name on the on the presentation. You know, I've authored the presentation, so I'm so I've got my name on it. You know, it's it's about accountability. And he said, this is garbage. This is this is not about you. This is about us. So I want your name taken off that. You weren't the author of this document. McLaren was the author of this document. And that may be a slightly sort of cheesy little lesson to learn, but it was a lesson nonetheless that this was uh, a team. And uh, and it's a sports team, of course. It's a it's a business. It's a company, of course. It is, but uh, but it's a team, and uh, and that's never left me. Um, that that it's all about you know it's all about we. It's not about me. I know a lot of people say that, but uh, but very few places live it. And uh, it was it was my first introduction really into uh, an elite sports brand, uh, the likes of which I'd I'd never been involved with before. Yeah, well, team is obviously a big factor in terms of agency world as well, but I'd, I'd love if you could perhaps elaborate a little bit more just on on some of the other differences between sitting in an organisation, as you said, as engineering and performance engineering driven as McLaren versus perhaps one of the one of the larger global brand consultancies. Yeah, so so with the the culture of, of engineers and, and technical people, you know, software analysts and people like that comes uh, a very dominant kind of um, left brain uh, type of thinking, I guess. And, uh, and of course, I stood out very much as one of the very few people who came from the kind of right side of the brain thinking. And uh, so I had, to, um, I had to resist the temptation, actually, to call things as I saw them for, for quite a long time. And I just had to absorb what was going on. I had to uh, talk to a lot of people. I had to read a lot of information. I had to learn a lot about the industry and about what uh, those people around me were doing at a at a senior level. Uh, because when you do then open your mouth or when you do make recommendations in an environment like McLaren, you need proof. You need evidence. These are engineers that work with data. Uh, they work with science. Uh, they don't work with concepts like I think or I, f- I feel we'd be best to and stuff like that. That's amorphous to them. And, uh, and engineers by nature, and I think this is a virtue, not a, not a fault, engineers by, by nature are, are trained to, uh, to, to, to find fault or weakness in arguments because ultimately what they're doing is about trying to apply mathematics to something physical to to make it better, to make it stronger, make it more robust, make it, uh, you know, work better. And uh, and so they, they they look for fault in arguments. They look for weakness. And uh, and so that taught me a lot about, about not just being resilient but about finding evidence for um, or supporting evidence for anything that I was going to say or recommend. 
And has the way that you've you've supported those statements and those recommendations changed over the years? Presumably there's been, and you've, you've been with McLaren a number of years now, presumably there's been a, a lot of change in the marketing environment and even beyond that, the available data that can help inform those decisions. Yeah, well, I, you know, in a way I've just coincidentally been there during a period in which uh, data in, in marketing and branding became far more of a, uh, of a science than an art as well. And so to some extent... Uh, that benefited me uh, along the way because we we were able to to show data, we were able to prove things. Uh, certainly, we were able to model things and and you know scenarios or or hypotheses. Uh, but the other the other part of that actually was a human dimension. So you know, the longer I was there, the the better the relationships I formed, uh, and of course the you know as you would hope the the greater the trust amongst a senior group of people. So that. Um, you know, it's very important in a team environment, of course, that people play well in their position. And and if over a period of time, you know, you gel by by all mutually playing reasonably well in your position, then that trust builds. So that when I do say something or or uh, or think something, um, a I wasn't as afraid to uh, express myself because I had some uh, hopefully some um, uh, some goodwill in the bank. Uh, but b there was also the trust there to. Uh, to you know, from from my colleagues to listen because we'd done things previously that had uh, had turned out for the best. Did being an antipodean in an organisation founded originally by Bruce McLaren help? Yeah. So ironically, you know, McLaren many people wouldn't know was founded by a chap called Bruce McLaren who was a Kiwi. And uh, although Bruce sadly died in 1970, there was a there was a uh, I would say a directness to the culture. Um, that uh, that maybe you could attribute to to Bruce. Um, whether specifically being an Antipodean helped, I don't know. But um, you know, certainly we as Antipodeans have a reputation for for directness and honesty, and I think that that's though those are both I think great characteristics in any business, but certainly in a business um, that's uh, that's all about proof and evidence. I think that you know the bullshit detectors that people have in a business like that are very finely tuned. And uh, and I always felt that I had to be on my uh, on my best performance in terms of um, uh, being robust, but also having the courage of my convictions and and that Antipodean style of delivery. I hope as well, um, you know, worked for me. Therefore, in uh, in persuading people that I was I was serious about what I was saying. Yeah, well, it obviously has worked very well for you. Your marketing skills have served you extremely well as you, as you moved from sort of global brand director to become chief marketing officer at McLaren and, and most recently joint managing director of, of Team Bahrain McLaren. How would you describe the role of brand um, in an engineering-driven organisation such as McLaren? Uh, well, I think the role of brand uh, in an engineering organisation or, or a technology group uh, like McLaren is probably not wildly different than it is anywhere it's it's and and has always been at its best a kind of a, a north star for businesses to um, hopefully be a reflection of of their values um, but also for those values to then uh, infuse the activities and the actions of the people within the business um, so that uh, so that the, the 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 business itself can build uh, relationships with its external stakeholders um, uh, who ideally are going to share those values or, or ascribe to those values uh, or aspire to to being part of those values. And particularly as a sports team, uh, then doing 
uh, technology work. I think the the touch points that people are able to have with that brand, whether they be fans buying a, a you know a twenty dollar cap uh, at the uh, Australian Grand Prix, or whether they be uh, you know, a different type of fan buying a $300,000 sports car. Um, you know, the, they want to feel the brand come through all of those different touch points. And so for me, that branding challenge or marketing challenge was actually intellectually fascinating, but also quite quite challenging because, you know, there are very few brands in the world that that operate through, you know, those kinds of demographic segments. They're very, very different. You know, you're on the one hand, you're appealing to kids who who buy into a cartoon series uh, about McLaren and on the other you're asking somebody to shell out uh, a million pounds for a car and those two people are quite different um, in their in their demographic profile. Speaking of differences, you obviously made the shift from, from CMO of McLaren Automotive, McLaren Racing, and now have become Joint Managing Director of Bahrain McLaren, the World Tour Cycling Team. What similarities does the F1 side of McLaren and Team Bahrain McLaren share? And what are some of the differences other than one focused on four wheels and one's on two? It's interesting. Uh, when I look at my CV and I see those those marketing roles, um, I don't know whether it says something positive or negative that that uh, the further along my journey I get, the further away from, from marketing <laughs> practice I get um, and more into, into management. But I think hopefully it's about picking up skills along the way that uh, that are broad-based in terms of operations and and businesses and commercial uh, skills as well as marketing skills. And in Formula One, um, those all come together in a very uh, cohesive way. And applying those to uh, Team Bahrain McLaren in in the UCI World Tour of of cycling has actually felt quite familiar, quite um, comfortable is probably the wrong word, but, but um, you know, certainly certainly not foreign to the world of Formula One because the stakeholder mix is, is frankly almost identical in terms of uh, the governing body. You know, there's a global governing body. Uh, there are commercial rights holders just as there are in, in Formula One, of course. Then you have uh, sponsors that you're dealing with. You have the talent, of course, the elite athletes, uh, in this case, we have 29 riders, uh, different, I guess, the Formula One, where you have two drivers. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, there's the, the team itself and, and uh, outside of that, the fans who you're trying to build franchise with and connect to. So, so the lessons of Formula One, um, not by coincidence, I should add, um, you know, kind of led me to feel that that was a very natural next step and a step that I wanted to take where... Where I wasn't just responsible for the marketing or the commercial side, the brand side, but uh, but uh, a number of those operational sides uh, as well, and dealing with some of those sometimes quite challenging different stakeholders. Sure, because you you look at the demands um, of of running a race winning teams. You've got you know extraordinary amount of focus, huge amounts of data, very engineering driven, extraordinarily ambitious with. What I can only assume is absolute microscopic attention to detail. What room for creativity is actually left in in that type of environment, John? That's a great question. Uh, I think I think there's as much room for creativity in there as you want there to be, I guess. And 
uh, I, I think that creativity still within that kind of environment can be one of the greatest differentiators. And when we first conceived of, of doing a team and, uh, and I first started talking to uh, Rod Ellingworth, who we've, who we've brought on as our uh, team principal, who was responsible for uh, developing and coaching uh, certainly three of the last four or five Tour de France winners, we were talking right from the outset about how this team looked and uh, we we wanted it to have a certain style about it, and we wanted it to have a uniqueness and a and a distinction to it. Uh, and even then, talking to uh, Mark Cavendish, who uh, who I'm lucky enough to to be friends with, who who was actually the first person I ever mentioned this concept to. Uh, he was talking about the brand. He was talking about the McLaren brand. How how will that translate into that world of data? How will that help us? Make bikes bikes that are lighter, faster. How will that help us with aerodynamics? But also, how will that help us with engaging fans? And uh, and so it, it came as a whole package. It wasn't uh, it wasn't kind of let's let's exhaust the data and the insights, uh, build strategies, and then see what's left for creativity. It was it was right from the outset. This needs to be different. It needs to look different. It needs to be sexy. It needs to be optimistic, fun, bright, mm-hmm. welcoming, warm, open, all of those things, uh, they just flowed uh, out, of, out of this kind of mutual desire for us to be different in the, in the sport of elite cycling. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's as if it wasn't challenging enough trying to get creative at the start of that journey, you've then, of course, been hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. I can only imagine that requires creativity of a very different sort in order to engage with those consumers that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it has. I think the coronavirus pandemic has probably um, taught a number of organisations uh, around the world what matters most. And, uh, and of course, it's been phenomenally challenging for, for everybody and desperately tragic for, for many, many more. Um, but when you come back to to our core business, uh, our core business is winning bike races, and when there are no bike races to win, um, of course, that's an almost um, uh, organisationally existential crisis. Um, and and it's a crisis for your sponsors as well. I can only imagine. Yeah, completely. And and that's that's been a, a theme through elite sport the world over. Is is when you're not racing, when you're not playing tennis, when you're not playing football. Um, you know what are the sponsors paying for, and uh, and the sponsors, of course, are are desperate to extract as much value uh, as as they can, quite rightly, and uh, and so you therefore need to start getting very creative about what other opportunities are there for for those sponsors. Those sponsors, many of whom want to engage with the team's fans, uh, don't suddenly just switch off. So we then ramped up a, a program very early on to make sure that we were uh, certainly at the forefront of uh, e-racing within the cycling community. We've, we've got some uh, leading platforms uh, in cycling, thankfully, already quite mature that, that enable that. Uh, a number of our riders, uh, to be honest, had never actually used those platforms because they, they do their training out on the road, not not in the living room. Um, but, uh, but when they're holed up in an apartment in Monaco, they had to get indoor trainers, they had to work out IT, they had to do all of those things, A, to keep fit, but B, to keep engaging, uh, A, with the team, B, with the fans, uh, and C, to, you know, to help drive sponsor value where we weren't 
able to provide that sponsor value through traditional means. And how's that been working for you? Tell us, tell us a little bit. I'm obviously familiar with the, the Riders One series on Zwift. I'd be interested to hear how that's been working and, and any results you could share with us. Yeah, so Riders One was a, a program that we created with Zwift. Zwift is is probably the most ubiquitous um, online uh, or or kind of e-gaming uh, cycling platform. There is very immersive, as close to a kind of real cycling experience, I guess, as you can simulate. And uh, we were very keen for our riders to get out there with the many tens of thousands of riders who frequent the Zwift platform. Uh, and of course, in a period like this, there were even more people jumping onto that platform. I think sales of indoor trainers uh, went through the roof during during the last couple of months. And so this, you know, Riders One gave, gave those fans the opportunity to ride with their heroes. Um, and... Uh, in a way, if if you were the NBA and you were able to simulate going out onto the court and playing basketball with your heroes, or AFL, you imagine you know going out and doing uh, doing kicking practice, you know, with your favourite team on the MCG. Those sorts of things would be amazing. We're just very lucky in cycling that we were able to simulate that in a way that is still uh, actually quite quite close to the demands of of the sport. You know, you can make it as physical as you like, and it's it's. Uh, it's called a game, but I, you know, having done it and having having personally participated in some of those Riders One events, right down the very back of the peloton, I can tell you, it doesn't feel like a game when you're I'm doing it. I'm back there it with feels, you, John. Don't worry. Feels very real. <laughs> well, I'll see you there. Well, I can only imagine the pivot that you'd need to make as an organisation from an organisation that's used to physical bike races, and all of a sudden now you're dealing with riders who've never even been on some of these new platforms like Zwift, um, let alone you know represented an organisation like Team Bahrain McLaren um, on those platforms. Can you step us through what that what that change looked like? It must have been a, a huge operation for you. Yeah, it was very intense, uh, time intense and uh, and intensive in terms of its its effort. Uh, it also was, you know, bear in mind we have 29 riders. Uh, they come from 14 different countries. We have language challenges. Uh, and of course, we then have fans who come from many more than fourteen countries, and so those language challenges multiply out. So one of the one of the challenges was being very clear uh, in our communications as to what we were trying to achieve. Uh, another was was far more basic, and that was just the, the the functionality of technology and making sure at a time when people are locked down and and unable to even go out to their local shop. How were we going to get that technology to them? How are we going to talk them through getting online and and setting that technology up? Uh, and that was that was uh, that was difficult for many. Luckily for me personally, I was already on it. Um, but uh, uh, and then it was then it was about trying to work out what were we actually trying to achieve with that content because it's one thing to make it into the forum and to get people along, but it's it's never going to succeed unless you've got some reason for being, some unmet need or a relevant uh, kind of um, need that it's going to fulfil for people. So, so if that is uh, building a sense of community, uh, if it's reassuring people that, uh, that there are still outlets available to them even if they're holed up in a one-bedroom flat somewhere... Um, or, or if it's giving them proximity to their heroes, and you, you, you can't just go into these things with a sort of vague sense of everybody's doing it. There are online sporting platforms. Let's join them. 
you need to actually answer very clearly and honestly, what are we actually trying to achieve here and how can we be different from the others, many others who are trying to do the same thing? Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, speaking of branded content, one of the other things that people are, are obviously delving into is, is every conceivable recommendation on Netflix at the moment, a lot of which, for me anyway, seem to be sporting documentaries. So if you're anything like me, I'm sure you've probably spent some time taking a look at the likes of Drive to Survive, which is the Formula One series. There's The Least Expected Day, which is the cycling series that focuses on Movie Star, I believe. And then there's Last Dance, which is the Jordan documentary as well. Tell me a little bit about your, your content marketing team and how they view the Netflix opportunity. I mean, I can only imagine as a sponsor, seeing the reach that some of these documentaries are now achieving for brands, um, the, the earned media for Nike alone coming off the back of The Last Dance as, as a documentary would be absolutely extraordinary. I'd be fascinated to hear from a leader of one of these, these teams about the types of conversations that are going on at the moment. Yeah, so I was, I was approached initially by Amazon, um, going back now must be four years, um, to, uh, to do a documentary on, on uh, McLaren and specifically on our Formula One drivers. And uh, that, that predated the Netflix uh, series. But um, that, that was a great learning experience for McLaren as well as, I think, for Amazon and their competitors um, and as, as well as our competitor teams in, in Formula One that, that uh, surprise, surprise, people want human stories. They want to uh, discover characters. They want a narrative arc that takes them through ups and downs and, and challenges and triumphs. And uh, uh, you can't script those, of course, with a documentary. You can, you can point the camera into the, into the right kinds of places. So we initially with that Amazon series actually almost changed the plot line as it started unfolding. And that then informed uh, the ambitions of, of Netflix, I believe. Netflix then uh, we had conversations with, um, must be three years ago. And the, the interesting thing with Netflix was when they came along and spoke to all of the teams, there were a number of leading teams that, that said to Netflix, basically, you should be paying us money uh, to do this because we could be selling the rights to the inside story. Uh, we took a completely different view at the time. And that was one built around, you know, opening the doors to people. And if you want popularity, which any sports team does, and you want to, to generate fandom and you, you want to engage those fans you already have, um, your, your physical opportunities for opening the doors are extremely limited. But through, through the forum of a documentary uh, and content development, which we'd been at the forefront of uh, over the last, uh, well, at least 10 years, uh, you have an amazing opportunity to show people that which they're never going to otherwise see. And so so it was interesting. There were a couple of teams that were left out of the first Netflix series and uh, very, very quickly, as soon as the second series was announced, they, they mysteriously seemed to sign up without any fee whatsoever uh, because, interestingly, their fans had had almost demanded they be involved. It was like, why on earth would you not be involved with this and, and help us get closer to our heroes? And, uh, and, uh, and I think that's been a really engaging series, a fantastic series, a well-handled series by Netflix, in part because they ticked those boxes that I mentioned at the beginning, and that is 
identifying characters, some of whom you know. You know, of course, Formula One, everybody uh, immediately gravitates towards the drivers, but there are so many colourful characters under the skin of the sport uh, that uh, that have great stories to be told. And, uh, and, I, and I think it's a fantastic couple of series. Yeah, I guess the, the challenge to that, which I'm sure you've had many conversations about, is that those colourful characters come with an inherent degree of risk. Um, and as a brand owner, when you engage in those types of content deals with the likes of Netflix, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear um, your point of view on how you balance out the degree of risk with content, quite frankly, that may not be all that flattering um, on being created on behalf of the brand or including the brand or the personalities that are associated with it and trying to weigh that up against the commercial opportunity and the reach opportunity that a platform like Netflix represents. How do you manage that? I think the key word in, in managing that is authenticity and, and you know, we did have and, and continue to have very open conversations internally about what our expectations here, what what's you know off limits, uh, and and trying to protect our people as well. I mean, one thing we never want to do is is expose our own people to undue levels of risk or impede them in being able to be themselves and doing the jobs that they're being paid to to do in what is a very demanding uh, environment and sport. So you know there are parameters there. There you know there's also uh, a sense of maturity in understanding that there are cameras in certain meetings or or situations. Uh, although although those uh, fly on the wall uh, documentaries feel to the to the viewer that um, uh, that you know they're getting a sneak peek behind the behind the curtain. Of course, when you're making those, there's not just a uh, a camera person in a room. There's also a sound person. There's a director. Or there's lighting. There's, you know, there's all there's all of that stuff that that happens. And so there is a slightly uh, suspended reality as well. Um, that said, there are a lot of live situations uh, where, uh, you know, like actual race situations where you, you, you know, you can't be cognizant of that because you're trying to do your job. Uh, and so they they do just get to observe what's what's really going on. But if you're not authentic. Fans and viewers can can sniff that at a at a thousand paces and uh, and they'll switch off. So so you know you you need to keep the the, the count of four letter words down pretty low and you need to uh, still represent your brand and your team uh, well and with integrity. But uh, but at the end of the day, you need people to be themselves because that's what's interesting. What's interesting with Last Dance in particular, I think, is the context that it takes place in. And the effect that Jordan in particular as a sports figure had, I'd be fascinated to get your take on that. What was it that that allowed a figure like Michael Jordan to transcend his sport and become so adored by so many people and he be so influential on, on not just basketball but on the sneaker category in general, for example? Yeah, I think part of that, to be frank, is probably timing. You know, there was a there was a, an opportunity, there was a moment in time where where that Category and that industry uh, really became a uh, a kind of a crossover from uh, the, the the sports industry into the fashion industry. Uh, it also coincided with an explosion in the uh, the the manner and the distribution of um, TV content, cable TV. All of those things kind of came together, and and uh, you know it was probably a bit of a tipping point moment for sports brands. 
But at the end of the day, none of that would have happened if if Jordan himself didn't have uh, a character that was galvanising and revered and respected um, by people uh, because of, you know, here's that word again, authenticity. He was being himself. He was very true to to his to his roots, to his background, uh, to his ideals, and uh, and and then smashing it out of the out of the ballpark or smashing it out of the out of the court. Uh, you know, every time he every time he played, so there was almost nothing there uh, to not like. But he was helped, and certainly Nike was helped by uh, the the timing of of um, his his rise and rise. Um, you know, being coincidental to the the rise of technology, uh, the diversification of uh, of fashion in its definition, um, uh, you know, and a number of other factors in terms of people's um, uh, formal marketing of brands and and, and brand extensions and mm. brand licensing, all mm. of those things, all of those things were kind of really reaching their their kind of zenith point uh, right at the time that he was reaching his. Yeah, it was an extraordinarily kind of symbiotic relationship between him and Nike um, as well. He was as competitive with Nike's competitors as as he was perhaps with the the competitors that he was facing on the court. So, speaking of partnership, one of one of the things I I wanted to to ask you about was was using partnership as a lever to to deliver the sort of change that you want to see in the world. Um, during your time at McLaren Technology Group, you you did expand the brand well beyond automotive. So you, you partnered with the likes of GSK and and Deloitte. Um, partners with Bahrain McLaren team include Lacole, Merida, uh, Richard Mille. So I, I would love to hear how you get the most out of out of those collaborations, John. If you could elaborate on that a bit for us. Yeah. So uh, you know when you when you list those sorts of partners, um, you know, and, and many others uh, through certainly my time at McLaren, Vodafone and and uh, others like that as well. They, they're across a number of very disparate categories and, uh, and, and that's because uh, certainly a brand like McLaren can apply itself to the betterment of a number of different situations using using either technology or using access to uh, fans or customers. And, and I would often talk about the multiplier effect, you know, the, the McLaren multiplier effect. When you partner up a brand like GSK with McLaren, uh, it multiplies the impact of GSK. It multiplies the excitement around GSK. It multiplies the opportunity uh, for a brand like GSK. Uh, and therefore, it carries with it a price premium. And that's that's what you know. All all kind of rights holder brands are trying to do. Uh, so, whether that be the Chicago Bulls or or uh, Essendon Football Club, you know, they're all they're all trying to multiply that benefit uh, to to the to the partners that they have. And so, we were able to do that across a number of different categories. It's it's not a magic wand. It's not it's not a panacea to everybody's marketing ills and. One thing that we moved away from probably two decades ago, uh, certainly prior to my time, was was the word sponsorship at McLaren, and that might sound a little corny that uh, that we just started using the word partnership, but we did that for a reason. One because it was more representative of what we were actually aspiring to sell, um, 
but two, because it was also then uh, signalling to people what our intent was, and our intent was never to be passive. Our intent was always to be collaborative, uh, to uh, to agitate, to uh, try and sort of do better tomorrow, whatever we'd done today. So it was it was about bettering those businesses uh, in a way that they weren't able to do themselves. And the brands that are smart enough and humble enough to realise that they can't do everything themselves are the brands that get the most benefit from those kinds of sporting partnerships. Uh, and that's been the philosophy right through through McLaren well before my time, uh, but that I've seen worked extremely well uh, through not just Formula One, but through through the cycling enterprise as well. And with those partnerships obviously comes a sense of expectation that's predominantly focused on on winning. People want to be associated and brands want to be associated with success. An organisation like McLaren, tell us about the, the tolerance for failure. And I, I don't mean to sound glib about that, but it's more about failure as an opportunity to learn. How is failure viewed at McLaren Group and how do you actually turn that into a positive? Failure at, at McLaren is is uh, a kind of a broadly defined thing. So so failure is, is uh, not in any particular order, but is not learning from mistakes, uh, not applying insights that, that come from things not working well. Failure isn't necessarily about just finishing second. And, you know, McLaren has a, a phenomenally proud history, 20 Formula One world championships, you know, 280 plus race wins. And there are very few teams in history that have that kind of record. But it also has a well-documented fallow period over the last few years. And that's been very difficult to to manage. Uh, thankfully, on the cycling side, we we came straight out of the blocks and uh, and uh, and won the Saudi Tour. We've we've already had wins at uh, Paris Nice this year, so so that's been easier to manage. But um, uh, there is a not a fear of failing at, at McLaren. There is just a performance environment where you know, I've already used the phrase um, "doing better tomorrow that which you've done today," and it's about it's about applied learning and continuous improvement. And those things are not particular to McLaren, but they are very uh, closely followed at McLaren and they're very, very um, central parts of McLaren's DNA. And and that makes the environment at McLaren uh, quite a tough environment. It's not an environment for, uh, for people who want a, an easy ride. Uh, it's quite a demanding place to be. And, and I've often said to people you know, interviewing candidates for, for roles. If you're the kind of person who gets an adrenaline rush out of, out of you know, that kind of walking on stage moment, then McLaren's the right place for you because you're going to feel that every morning when you, when you show up for work, um, that, that you'd better do something that's pretty damn good. And, uh, and that's not about uh, avoiding failing. That's just about trying to, trying to reach the maximum of, of each and every one of our potential. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the questions that's kind of related to that is is in a in a in a culture of continuous innovation, um, and also in such a competitive culture, how do you how do you know when to stop? You know, I th- I think one of the one of the interesting one of the most fascinating sequences in the in the Last Dance Jordan documentary is where they talk about. Um, the opportunity that they should have had, the Bulls should have had to go for a seventh title. And Jordan says that it it irks him every day that they were never given that opportunity. And you contrast that with Phil Jackson, who kind of, when he's asked the question, looks straight down the barrel of the camera and said, no, it was time to, it was time to stop. 
you know, the team had had a great run, we were done. How do you you know when the right time to stop is in that sort of environment? I I think if you know the right time to stop, to stop, uh, you don't belong in an elite sports environment. So, you know, the the people required to prevail at the, at the highest level in an elite sports team or team environment are those who actually don't know when to stop. Um, so is that the difference between a coach and a player, do you think, in terms of Phil Jackson having that insight, recognising that it was time for him, but perhaps, you know, Jordan felt very differently, obviously. Yeah, possibly. And you look at, uh, you look at a number of different elite sports around the world and... Uh, there are a huge number of, of players and participants who the world probably judges left it too late or overstayed their welcome. Then you see the inevitable, um, slightly undignified sometimes, a kind of descent back down the ladder of, of people who go from, uh, you know, a, a top three football club to a kind of bottom three football club to a second division football club to a niche Chinese football club and, you know, those people are still of the belief that they've got what it takes and that's probably what made them champions in the first place. So it's difficult to judge, it's difficult to judge the right time to, to stop. If you, if you believe also that you've, uh, that you've reached your North Star, then it probably wasn't the right North Star, you know, and the North Star metaphor is used because uh, of its unattainability, yeah, you know, that. it just keeps guiding people on to to do better, and uh, and that that's actually one of the major reasons I, I love that elite sports environment is to be surrounded by those sorts of people, particularly the athletes, who just know no limits. You know, they just um, they, they just want to keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and uh, believe me, they're just different. They're hardwired in a completely different way to yeah. us mere mortals. Yeah. Well. Look, one, one of the things that, that you're also surrounded by in, a, in addition to elite athletes is, is your headquarters at McLaren Technology Centre. I remember several years ago now sending a client of mine um, who was on a world tour of, of um, the world's most progressive uh, technology headquarters. I think he swung by Facebook, Google, Amazon um, and was lucky enough to meet your good self at McLaren Technology Centre and said far and away, hands down, it was the most impressive building that he visited that year. What, what role does physical environment play in driving the, the high performance culture at McLaren? It's absolutely fundamental. So, uh, the, you know, it's no coincidence that we have that building. That building uh, was really the brainchild of, of Ron Dennis and... Uh, he worked with Lord Foster, Norman Foster, one of the world's greatest architects, to conceive of a building that would uh, provide an environment in which people felt stimulated to do their absolute best and be proud of of going to work every day and stimulated by going to work every day. And uh, the building was opened by Her Majesty the Queen in 2004. Uh, interestingly, it was designed to take... Uh, up to 1,800 people, which at the time seemed like a, a, an extraordinary uh, ambition to, uh, to to grow to have 1,800 people. Uh, McLaren's now well over 4,000 people. So, so although it's a stunning building, it's getting a little cramped. But um, <laughs> but nonetheless, it is it's a stunning building. And uh, I remember prior to the creation of the new Apple headquarters in Cupertino. 
uh, Tim Cook and Johnny Ive uh, came to McLaren and, and I was lucky enough to meet them and, and show them around and they were keen to see our building. Uh, and from what I've seen of, of their amazing facility there, it, uh, it, it's very much cut from the same cloth. It, uh, it shares a number of those, uh, those aesthetic uh, qualities and, uh, and ambitions in terms of its impact on the people who work there. Uh, and it's probably no great coincidence that Lord Foster designed that building as well. I really appreciate you taking time out today to chat with us on Chunk of Change. As I said, you know, you, you are one of Australia's great marketing exports. Not only that, but you're also one of our great ambassadors as well. It's been a real privilege. So thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change, John. That's very kind, Steve. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure and I've really enjoyed the chat. All the best. 